Welcome to the Thrive Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our special guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit thrivevineyard.com. Good morning. Well, my name is Ryan Searles. Um, and what I like to do when I start is I like to declare who I am so you get to know me better and just declare vulnerably my weakness. And so here goes. And at the end of that, if you remember from last time, you get to say, at the end, you get to say, hi, Ryan. So you ready? Okay. So I am Ryan Searles. As I said, I'm a beloved son and believer in the God of the Bible and a friend of Jesus. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm anointed to call others into a relationship with Jesus through the same spirit. And as of late, I struggle with lust and self-control and fear and anxiety. Hi. Thank you. See how close we are now? So I have a question for you to consider this morning. And the question is this. What is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you? What is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you? Well, if you ask me when I was 12 years old, the greatest thing that ever happened to me when I woke up Christmas morning in 19... (laughs) is under the tree was an Apple IIe computer. I don't know if you can see that. Apple IIe computer. Yes, so, you know, this was was back in the day. My parents really sacrificed for me. They, They knew... We've got to give this kid something to do on the weekends. Um, he's not good at sports, so we'll figure something out. And um, it's interesting because it turned out you know, that is actually what I do in my career now. I'm actually a computer, as my son would say, nerd. So thank you, Mom and Dad. It was the greatest thing at that point that had happened to me. Then if you fast forward in my life, maybe 10 years later or so, I would say the greatest thing that's ever happened to me at age 22 was that I met, fell in love, and married Rebecca Aaron Hyatt. And so, you know, she has been a wonderful, what am I supposed to say, honey? Um, uh, Amazing, incredible wife to me. And I am easily, could say at age 22, that's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Then if you fast forward maybe 20 years later and looking back upon the fact that I have nine children, you, you maybe you've saw them before, I have nine children. So having, a, having being married and having a family of nine children, maybe it was the you know, greatest thing that had happened to me at age, say, 40, 43, 44. Very, very wonderful things. But if I fast forward, then keep going further to age 100, my grandmother is 102. So I'm, say I'm 102 now, looking back upon my life, what would I say is the greatest thing that ever happened to me? And if I go even further, if I go, say, a thousand years into my, into, you know, from now, what's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me? Or a million years, or 10 million years. Well, I can safely say that if I look back on my life during those periods, I will say that the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is that when I was nine years old, my mom and dad told me about the man who died for me. And that enabled a... a, a a richer life with God while I was biological and it enabled the life to come that I've been living for the last million minus 100 years, if I make it to 100. That's the greatest thing that has ever happened to me, undoubtedly, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ was spoken 
and penetrated my heart and it called me heavenward. They gave me the gospel. My parents, my parents were a part of that. They told their firstborn son, Ryan, about the man Jesus. They, so they were involved in the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. What is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you? Well, in Romans 1.16, it says that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God that brings salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation, believe. Salvation comes to those who believe. But let me ask you a question. Why do we believe the gospel? Why do we believe in the truth about Jesus? Why do we believe that? We want to start here with why. Well, many of us would point to our own experiences, our own experiences with God, and those are very real. And if we're, if we're out there talking to others, we say, you know, Jesus spoke to me, or we say that we see miracles, or we say it just works for me, or it's the, how, how I was raised. And those, that individual experience that we have is very real. But did you know that others in our lives who do not follow Jesus have their experiences too. And to them, they are very real. So we need something even stronger than our own experience just to answer the question, why do we believe in the Bible? We need legal, historical evidence. So in the court of law, if, something, if, they're, if they're actually debating in the court of law and trying to prove someone either innocent or guilty or that something happened, that happened, of course, in the past. In our case, what we're trying to prove is that the Son of God came to earth, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, and that he poured out the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the gospel that we live in. And that, we, that, we've, that that's, this is what we're trying to prove to people when we talk to others about the Lord. We need something, the same thing that you need in a court of law. We need evidence from eyewitnesses who were there. We need them, all their stories to align. We need eyewitness corroboration, as it's called. In other words, if everybody is reporting the same thing, however impossible, it must be what happened. So then I'm going to ask you again, why do you believe in the gospel? Well, here's why I believe. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, reporting of supernatural events that occurred in, in place of fulfillment of specific prophecies. I'm going to see that last part again. Events that took place in fulfillment of specific properties. Prophecies, sorry, prophecies. That right there, that, that, this is from Vodi Bakum. I don't know if you know the, the teacher Vodi Bakum. This struck me about 10 years ago, and it really helped me answer the question, why do I believe? Let's say it again. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the time of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Let's break this down. Reliable historical documents. The Bible is made up of 66 books 
written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, by more than 40 authors, most of whom have never met, because it was written over a period of 1,500 years. And the accuracy of these historical documents have been supported by the findings of more than 23,000 archaeological digs. It is reliable, and it's consistent. Now, it says, by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. If there's many witnesses to the same thing, as I said earlier, it can be believed. There were so many witnesses to what happened during the events of the Bible, and they align, they call it synoptically, so that they cannot be disputed because they're so, it's so hard. The probability of the same person or different people independently telling the same story of what they observed is defensible in a court of law because it's so hard to lie independently in a, in a complex way. And did you know that 300 eyewitnesses were di- uh, alive during the writing of the letter of the Corinthians? So what happened, the idea is, is that if these letters come out and people believe them, there's so many people that were living. If it wasn't true, they would say, that's not true, that's not true. And the letters would have been torn up as heresy. But because so many people could corroborate what happened, it was reliable. And lastly, the fulfillment of specific prophecies. Prof- many, many of the prophecies, most of the prophecies in the, in the Bible have already taken place. They've been fulfilled in some cases hundreds of years after they were recorded. The probability of these prophecies coming true by human means is impossible. That leads us to believe that the Bible is the word of God. And so again, I will say, why do we believe the gospel? Because the Bible is a collection, a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses reporting of supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. So that's why I believe the Bible. How about you? So Kevin and Molly have been going through, during this season, the book of Acts. And really the season of rebuilding and refreshing and really kind of resetting our thoughts around what is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose? What is our goal as a church? And so we are reading the book of Acts, and I have chosen Acts 17 to read and, and share with you today. So would you kind of turn to with your Bibles or your phones or your, your if you've memorized it, Dan, um, uh, Acts 17, just kind of six, verse 16, we'll start. And this is the story of Acts about the evangelist, Paul, the writer of most of the, the books of the New Testament, the letters, and he's out doing what he does as he's speaking about Jesus the people. And here now he's in Greece, he's in the city of Athens. And so this is in verse 16 in Acts 17. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul in the city that he was in, was distressed to see gods being worshipped, foreign gods, false gods, idols being worshipped. So the question for us is, are we distressed when we see 
the gods that are being worshipped here in Palatine, in Cook County, in the places where we live and work. And maybe nowadays the god is money, the god is self, the god is, um, you know, people. Are we distressed about that? And lastly, we we see Paul reasoning with them to defend the faith. And we spoke about the reason why we believe. And so he's coming with that awareness. He is a master of the Old Testament at this time. And so he's coming to explain the gospel because of his knowledge of the Bible. Charles Spurgeon said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. You just have to release the lion and the lion will defend itself. That's what the Bible does. It defends itself. So we read on now, verse 18. It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating for foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was persecuted. Paul was taunted and he was confronted for his faith. And I want to say to you, if you make it a lifestyle to share your faith and your life with others, you will be persecuted if you're doing it right. That's a promise. Lastly, he was accused of advocating for foreign gods by these people. Are we not advocating to a God that is foreign to many in Palatine and in Cook County? Are we not speaking about the one they may not know. We're doing the same thing. But now that we're here, he's obviously pursuing them because we're here. And then, the, and then, the, and then, the cha- then Paul now begins to reason with them. I want you to watch how Paul does his research. He tries to understand where they're coming from. And then he goes to them in a language they can understand with a context they can understand. It says in 1722, Paul stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So then he goes on after this and defends the faith. He tells them about Jesus and the God, the, that Jesus is God, that he comes from heaven and he, he, he was part of the creation process and he's come to save them and reach out to them. So Paul met them where they were at. So now we find ourselves today wanting to do our research. So I have, I've done some research for you today and I'd like to share some data if that's okay. So there are really three in, in our world. I'm going to go up top. I'm going to go all the, the whole world. Then I'm going to bring it in just to the United States. So the whole world, there's really three different systems of faith or non-faith. There's Christianity. And really the world is 31% self-proclaimed Christian. Then the non-Christian religious people, people of faith, but not a Christian faith, 53%. And this is Islam. This is Hinduism and Buddhism and other faiths, folk religions, and so forth. And then there's 16% of the world that says no faith. And, and you can call that ag- uh, atheism or agnostic or natural, empiri- 
empiricalism, just believing in biology and science, nothing beyond what I can touch, taste, smell, or see. But in the U.S., in the, this country where we live in, it's a little different, did you know? 63% are claim to be Christian. Now, this is shrinking from 77% 12 years ago. But you have to ask, too, you know, being a self-proclaimed Christian is not the same as being a Christian or follower of Jesus, walking with him, trusting with him. So, but also in, in the actual amount of you know, kind of religious non-Christians, much smaller, 9%, but it's actually been growing the last 12 years. It was at 5%, now it's at 9%. So that, that percentage is growing. But the real growth, the fastest growth in our, in our country is atheism, agnosticism. That is, was, is now at 28%. I think it was like 17% 12 years ago. So it is just cruising. So we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about that. But what I want to do is share with you some thoughts and some research and some context around these two non-Christian views on faith. So let's start with growing non-Christian faiths. Now, someone might say to you, what's the difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ or the, the faith that we, we, we trust in the Bible and all other religions in the world. And it's really good to have an answer because it's really easy to say that they're all the same thing. It's very comfortable. I find myself, I, I would, when I confess to you, someone would say to me, well, you know, it's all God and it's all the same thing. And I've been like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But watch this. So I got a, I got a little slide here to talk to you about, and you can't see all that, but the largest religions. So we got Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. And then there's Christianity. So in, in Islam, so we can talk about the, the different views of God. In Islam, there is one God. It's not a triune God. It's one God, Allah. In Hinduism, many, 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 many gods. Millions of gods, in fact. And in Buddhism, there is no God. It, there's no God in Buddhism. Yet we believe in the triune God. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, who is Jesus in these other religions? Well, in all cases, other than Christianity, Jesus is a prophet. He is not God. He's a prophet. Or he's an enlightened one in the case of Buddhism. He's respected. Don't get me wrong. But he is not the creator God, one with the Father that we believe. Sin is also viewed differently in these different faiths. Some say it's forgetfulness. Some say it doesn't exist. Some say it is actually something that needs to be corrected. But salvation is also very different. In, in Islam, you know, you, you, it's really about what you do. There's five tenets of faith. And there's a lot of things you have to do to be right with God. And in, and in Hinduism, there's also, you have to have karma. You have to do more good than bad to be acceptable to move on in this life and break the cycle of reincarnation. And same thing with, with, with Buddhism. There's, there's an eightfold path to life. It's about effort and livelihood and mindfulness and concentration. There's things you have to do to be saved. But as we know with Christianity, there's two little letters that the Lord adds to the word do. N-E. It is done. That is the core difference that we want to hold on to in those conversations. That it is done. Your salvation is assured 
your afterlife, your life after life is done because of Jesus. So hold on to that. And how do we receive salvation? In Romans 10, 9, it says we confess and believe. We confess that Jesus is Lord and God rose him from the dead. It's a free gift of trusting in God that we receive. It's done. He did that. So now we're going to move to the, the religion or the non-religion that I find myself in my work, my friends, that I find most prevalent, and that is atheism. 92 million people in this country are atheists, agnostics. I actually spoke to one the other night. So to them, God does not exist. And here is why. Here is the core argument that an atheist will generally give you of why they do not believe in God. It goes something like this, and it's very powerful. Your God, your God, Ryan, is all-powerful. That's what you tell me. And he is all loving and all giving and all kind. And yet, if I look around me on this earth, I see suffering, I see death, I see evil. That your God could stop if he was all loving. Therefore, he must not exist. I'm going to believe, I'm going to go with biology. That's what I can see. So that is a strong argument. And let me give you the perspective that I've been given about how to have that discussion. And it's the concept of local knowledge. Local knowledge. So think about universal knowledge and local knowledge. And what I want you to put yourself in the chair of my two-year-old, sitting in the dentist chair. He's a little boy with some local knowledge. And he sees his parents waving at him from behind the equipment. And all of a sudden, this man comes from behind and he's fully masked and he's all in green. And he's coming at him with, with tools and scary things. And little boy starts to scream and cry because he doesn't know what's really going on. He doesn't have the big picture that this is ultimately for his good. He has local knowledge. When we say that suffering, that God wouldn't allow suffering, we're using local knowledge. God's ways are higher than our ways. There is a greater purpose for him allowing freedom to occur on the earth. And we want to push beyond local knowledge. But what value are these arguments sitting here in church on a Sunday morning? What value of this knowledge is this knowledge unless it brings us to action, to movement? I heard it said that we're not waiting for the move of God. God, we are the move of God. I've heard that said as we are filled with his spirit. But what would motivate me to do as Paul did? What would motivate me to defend the faith, to reach out to those that do not believe and have a conversation to them? What would motivate me to do that? Well, I want to read you a story of a, of a, of a college student. Her name is Isabella to give you a clue of why we would do that. So she said, I grew up knowing about Jesus and going to church on special holidays like Easter and Christmas. Sound familiar? I never truly knew that I could have a relationship with him. My dad passed away when I was five years old, which didn't help my family's church attendance nor my relationship with Jesus. I found myself building up walls and closing off to the closest people to me. And when middle school came, 
I joined the teenage bandwagon and started to concern myself with satisfying people rather than God. My heart was full of anxiety and bitterness toward people I love most, and it reflected in my life. I remember crying out to Jesus, hoping that he would hear me when I was in times of need, but that's all he was to me, was a crutch. I used him whenever I was caught between a rock and a hard place. But then, thankfully, an evangelist from Grace Christian Church reached out to my brother and shared the gospel with him. He got saved and soon shared the gospel with my sister, when he, who then shared it with me. When I heard that you could have an intimate relationship with Jesus, my jaw dropped. And I soon found repentance and put my faith and trust in him. I'm now part of a church and have an amazing relationship with my family members and most importantly with Jesus. To this day, he continues to move miraculously in my life. I want you to focus on the word, thankfully. She is glad that someone had the guts to reach out to her brother. She is so glad that her brother told, talked to her sister. And she is so glad and thankful that her sister talked to her. Her jaw dropped. We must believe, if we're to be, we must believe that it is what is good for us, what saves us, what gives us eternal life, can be good for them can save them, can bring them life and joy and the same happiness and more than we have can be for them. We have to believe that they will be glad. They will be glad once they experience the man Jesus in their life. So someone like us must have the guts to reason with them as Paul did the, the people of Athens. Someone, someone must have the, the fearlessness to be motivated by love to tell them the good news about Jesus. That they may know the jaw-dropping wonder of the man who died for them. And then in a hundred years, in a thousand years, in a million years, they will look back on the role that you played, that I played in their life when the greatest thing that ever happened to them was spoken. Now, I know that all of us in our heart want to be a part of that for someone else in our family. In our, we want that. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. It's, it's, it's a fearful thing. It's, it's a hard thing to walk up to um, somebody that may persecute you, may call you names, may make fun of you as being ignorant or small-minded. I know that's hard. I have been told that myself. So we need something strong, something powerful inside us to give us boldness, to give us the words, as Kevin spoke, the words, God's words, that can bring life for them. We need something more powerful. We need Pentecost in our lives. We need to be anointed. Here's what he does. It says in Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I heard it say, in the presence of my fears, you anoint my head with oil so that my cup overflows. We're speaking to people about Jesus. We want to be an overflow from our own cups and our relationship with him and the spirit indwelling with us. That's, that's evangelism. It's an overflow of the cup that's already filled. 
So as we close, I want to pray for the same thing that Peter prayed for. I want to pray for Pentecost for us. The Spirit falling down. We've done our research. We've got our arguments. We're ready to go. But what we really need is supernatural power and boldness to go. I've heard it said that what happens here has got to get there. So that's what I want to pray for this morning. And then we'll have some time of ministry. So would you, would you join me in prayer? Lord, um, we stand today in the day remembering Pentecost, Lord, but we know that that did not stop on that day. We know that your spirit falls on hearts and minds even today, Lord. So, Lord, would you fill us today? Would you pour out from heaven? Just as you've gathered heaven before us today, would you pour out from heaven your Holy Spirit unto each one and anoint the evangelists in this room. Anoint each one as being sent into their homes, into their families, into their workplaces, and even in their community to be an evangelist, a spiritually, a spirit-filled evangelist able to speak the very words of God to cut to their hearts as you only can. So we trust in you now today, Lord, in your great ability to do what we cannot do is save men and women. In Jesus' name, amen.